0: This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC.
1: It feels like your fight or flight response has kicked into overdrive.
2: Take it very, very dark. You feel both trapped but also threatened. It swirls into just complete an unknown fear of impending doom. Well, Your heart's racing, you're sweating, and you just feel like you're about to
1: die. It's the worst thing ever. You can't die from a panic attack, and that's the most important thing because in the moment, that's exactly what I felt.
3: Mine got so bad as to where my own mother, I would say, tap me lightly on the cheek so I know I'm alive. About one in four of us in the U.S. will experience a panic attack at some point in our lives. Before we get started, I want to mention that if you're suffering from anxiety or panic attacks, you can call the Mental Health Crisis Hotline 988 for help. Now, this show is all about anxiety. We discuss why panic attacks happen and how to prevent them. We also speak with the man who chose an on-camera career in broadcast TV, even though going live triggered panic attacks for decades. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We get into all of it after the break. Stay with us.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online.
3: Let's get into it with our guests. Matt Gutman is the chief national correspondent for ABC News. His new book is called No Time to Panic, How I Curbed My Anxiety and Conquered a Lifetime of Panic Attacks. Matt, welcome to 1A. Thanks, Jen.
1: Go ahead. I just heard the voices of those people describing what they went through, and I'm just so sorry for all of them, because panic is so very scary when it happens. It is literally your brain telling your body, that there is an impending threat that is so severe that if you don't deal with it, you're going to die. And just hearing those stories is heartbreaking that so many Americans go through this every single day. Yeah,
3: I also want to include Dr. Alan Vora in the conversation. She's a psychiatrist and author of The Anatomy of Anxiety. Dr. Vora, welcome.
4: Hi, Jen. Thank you.
3: Now, Matt, your history with panic attack goes back decades, but there was a turning point in early 2020 that made you realize you wanted to conquer them. What happened?
1: You know, Jen, I've been trying to deal with panic for years before that. um, And I tried to suppress panic through the use of Xanax, uh, benzos, uh, Paxil, which is an antidepressant, Um, smoking cigarettes sometimes before live shots. I had a couple of pairs of lucky underwear in the rotation Mm. thinking that it might help, Uh, but nothing really helped. And I sort of just trudged along dealing with panic and was slightly miserable about certain types of live shots that's presenting live on tv that i had to do specifically the short ones like the 15 second ones where like you're in calm and everything is perfect and there's no possible reason that you should botch this live presentation because it's so easy it's 15 seconds 65 words how could you possibly mess that up those caused me to melt down. Those were so scary for me that I couldn't handle the pressure. Um, and in January of 2020, um, I got a call. It was my manager, uh, bureau chief at ABC here in in LA. And she said, we, we think Kobe Bryant uh, has been killed in a helicopter crash. It was 10 miles from my house. Um, and I went there and our first live report, which is right after this happened, um, we went on air and I made a catastrophic mistake. And out of respect for the bride family, I'm not going to get into it, but I made a catastrophic mistake. The first time I've ever made an on-air mistake during a panic and I was suspended for it. And basically my brain couldn't handle the so many lanes of traffic at mm-hmm. once, right? There was dealing with the reporting. There was also dealing with the personal, which was that my father was killed in a plane crash um, at the same age as Kobe Bryant was, and I was the same age as Gianna, his daughter. And this stuff was rattling around in my brain. And I basically couldn't separate the wheat from the chaff in my reporting and made this catastrophic mistake. And for years, I'd already been talking to my wife about the panic and how it makes me feel, and that makes me miserable, and I'm afraid of going live, and it makes me unhappy. And she'd been massively supportive and saying, hey, let's, you can leave this business. We'll downsize our lives. We'll figure something else out. Um, but I don't want you to live your life miserable. And so after this panic attack and the suspension, uh, we talked about it again. And I, I basically decided that I am going to leave TV news um, unless I find something else that is going to help me with my panic. Mm. Um, and this wasn't the start of the book. It was the start of a journey um, that took three and a half years. The the thought of like, hey, maybe this should turn into a book came about a year and change after that. But at first it was like, okay, I've got to figure this out. I've got to put everything I have into figuring out why I have these panic attacks and how to deal with that.
3: We'll hear more about that journey shortly, but Dr. Vora, what is a panic attack? Explain it to us. What's happening in our body?
4: Yeah, so it's typically a discrete episode. It's defined as an abrupt surge of intense fear or discomfort, and it reaches a peak within minutes, which distinguishes it from generalized anxiety where you can feel anxious around the clock. And it usually has symptoms that include your heart racing, chest tightness, your breathing might become rapid and shallow, your hands might shake, some people experience lightheadedness or dizziness. And often there's an idea of feeling like I'm losing touch with reality, or I'm having a heart attack, or I'm going crazy. How is a panic attack
3: different than a panic disorder?
4: So panic disorder is basically once you have uh, recurrent and unexpected panic attacks, then you would qualify for the diagnosis of panic disorder, which impacts some 6 million American adults. Uh, Matt, you've been experiencing panic attacks
3: since college. What's your first memory of having one?
1: So just to add to what Ellen, who is in the book uh, and who I interviewed, in, is incredible. Um, you know, a panic attack can happen once and, and, you know, the stats are that 28% of Americans are expected to have a panic attack at some point in their lifetime. But so many people like me didn't know that they actually had panic. And I'd been to therapy, Jen, for so many years and I still didn't have the wherewithal to understand that the bouts of nerves that I were ha- that I was having were panic attacks.
3: What, what, was um, the, was it because you weren't describing it in in such a way that it would be interpreted as a panic attack to your therapist? Did you not have the language for it?
1: It's a great question. Um, I don't think I had the language for it. And I think that they were so catastrophically scary. Um, It is, you know, a psychological disorder in which people think that they're often going to die, which is why every year, 40% of people presenting at the nation's ERs thinking that they're having a heart attack are actually having a panic attack. So, you know, I, I tried really hard to bury it. I called it nerves. Um, I even wrote about it cryptically in my journals when I described my panic attacks. Like in this indecipherable shorthand that I used in my uh, reporting, I was a print reporter, so that people wouldn't peek over at my notepad and be able to see what I wrote. But I was writing in that hieroglyphics to myself. Mm -hmm. It was bonkers. Um, So like, I think a lot of it was just an an attempt to assert self-control by hiding the fact from myself that I had panic. And so yes, like I wasn't able able to describe it to therapists at the time because I couldn't even describe it capably to myself. Uh, and this persisted for many years until finally, uh, I talked about it with a friend. He's like, dude, those are panic attacks. You are suffering textbook panic attacks on air.
3: Well, we heard from Susan in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, who emails during a recent talk therapy session, I was describing what I thought was anxiety. My therapist stopped me mid sentence to tell me what I was describing sounded like a panic attack. I had no idea there was such a wide array of symptoms. I think media, TV, and movies have skewed my impression of what a panic attack looks like. We also heard from Cheyenne.
2: My panic attacks have been driving specific. Some of the tell signs for me it's a heart spike and the feeling of loss of control, I've learned to identify and find ways to distract myself. Unfortunately, in the past, I kind of gave into that fear and stopped driving for a while because of the panic attacks. But now I know how to better look for those tells and take care of myself. Thanks for that message.
3: Dr. Vora, women are more than twice as likely as men to suffer from panic disorder, which, as you said, involves experiencing multiple panic attacks. That's according to a study published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. How else do our lifestyles and demographics affect our likelihood of experiencing panic attacks?
4: Well, panic attacks can absolutely impact everyone. And This really draws upon my own personal take on panic, which is that it's so much more based in the body, even than just the way we typically think about mental health as existing exclusively from the neck up. And there's a lot that can happen in our physical body that can prime us or lower our threshold for panic, and that can have to do with how we're sleeping, how we're feeding ourselves, even our caffeine consumption alcohol fallout, all of that can impact our likelihood of experiencing panic.
3: And Matt, briefly, what have you learned so far about what's likely to trigger a panic attack for you?
1: I mean, for me, it's the expectation of perfection. Um, You know, uh, it's the thought that I have to be perfect during a live shot or in front of other people. So one of the things that I discovered pretty early on, I didn't discover, but I learned um, during my reporting for this book is that you know? evolutionary psychology plays such a big role in how we are, right? So there were two major buckets of human fear, Jen. One is the one you're thinking about for early humans, right? Like you're on the savanna and a lion comes and eats you. You're dead, right? That's a fear. Um, you'd be killed by lightning, by horrible neighbors down the cave who would kill you. The other bucket is a social fear. And we were primed because we evolved to cooperate with our fellow humans to Fear being ousted from our group as much as we feared being eaten by a lion.
3: Matt, let's let's pause here and hear more about these buckets of fear we experience after a short break.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
2: In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths
3: wherever you get podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation about panic attacks with this voicemail.
4: It was terrifying, and it definitely altered the course of my life. It would affect work, school, relationships. I planned everything around not having another panic attack. Eventually, I found the right doctor and the right treatment, and things got under control. I feel good now. And I also feel like nowadays you can discuss it much more openly
3: and I'm not afraid to share my experiences. That was Michael in Indianapolis. Michael, thanks for sharing that with us. Now, Matt, before the break, you were describing these two buckets of fear. One bucket holds the type of fear that's based in you know, being killed by a predator or struck by lightning, but then the, that other bucket of fear is about being cast out of our social group. Go ahead.
1: Right. So this is, evolutionarily speaking, we spent tens of thousands of generations, Jen, having these two major primary sources of fear. One is like physical danger, the other is social danger. And we evolved to associate social danger as being as scary as a lion coming to eat us, which is why we have panic attacks in social situations. Glossophobia, fear of public speaking, is by far the most common source of phobias um, and of panic as well. And just hearing Michael, you know, it's the the thing is that, that once we start practicing these avoidance behaviors and we get scared of the thing that gives us a panic attack, it can make people agoraphobic. So what happens is in the brain, your brain sends a signal to the rest of the body that there is an imminent threat and that threat may be social. And it's telling the body that it has to address that threat immediately or else something really bad is going to happen, which is why some of your listeners described that impending sense of death, and which is why a study from psychology in 2022, just last year, said that 40% of all patients at the nation's ERs thinking that they're having a heart attack are actually having a panic attack. It's stunning, but it is something that is in your body being broadcast to the rest of your body that this is an imminent fear. You've got to deal with it right now. We need mayday, mayday, mayday.
3: Dr. Bora, what is the chemical response in the body that causes humans to experience panic attacks?
4: Yeah, panic is a complex interplay of different brain regions, different neurotransmitters. A key player is something called the amygdala in the brain. And it's the part of the brain that processes emotions and threats. And then it can call out the bat signal to activate the sympathetic nervous system with hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And there's another brain region called the prefrontal cortex that's also in Play and it can really play such a pivotal role. It can either calm down the amygdala by sending inhibitory, reassuring signals, but oftentimes it can also worsen panic by generating negative thoughts or having catastrophizing ideas. We get this email from Maggie
3: who says, My husband has anxiety and panic attacks. Living with someone who has internal panic can be challenging when you see the external reality differently. We've been married 14 years and I still don't know how to handle it. How should others react? Dr. Vora, any advice for a spouse or other loved one who is trying to figure out the best way to support someone who's having panic attacks or dealing with
4: anxiety? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's a lot that we can do. Um, Our fear can play a role. And so if somebody's having a panic attack, and you convey to them with your facial expression, with your body language, that this is freaking me out, then that can really start to snowball the whole experience. And so to help holding space in a way that's saying, you know, you're having an exquisitely uncomfortable experience, but I'm right here with you, and I can handle this, and it doesn't scare me. Um, And I think that, of course, people talk about breathing into a paper bag, part of that has to do with the mm, acid-base profile of the bloodstream and increasing carbon dioxide in the bloodstream, which can be helpful because when we panic, sometimes we overbreathe and then we actually don't have enough carbon dioxide in our bloodstream. I think breath work is a really interesting suggestion. I tend to observe in my practice that when someone is what I call past the point of no return and they're already in a panic attack, suggesting that they take slow, deep breaths is sometimes counter-therapeutic and it can just feel too difficult and triggering, but that's a really useful strategy to prevent panic attacks if you can do it on a daily basis.
3: Matt, in your experience, what type of support was most helpful for you? And I'm speaking specifically about the type of support that came from the people around you. Nobody knew. Huh. Not people even your, your spouse? Your, your spouse even?
1: But she never, I never had a panic attack with her or around her. It was solely when I was on air or, or spoke publicly. Um, so, yeah, and I, I mean, and I wouldn't want anybody messing with me. You know, someone coming to you and telling you, it's going to be okay, relax, breathe. Those are terrible things. It, and it, it might work for some people. I, I just didn't want to be messed with. Um, and so for me, uh, I'm not sure what kind of actual intervention would have worked. Um, I don't think there is. I think it's, it's really a preparatory, right? It's letting somebody know that it's normal. I mean, these are the things that helped me. A panic attack is normal. we are wired for this that 's why so many people have it, and while it 's still why it 's still in the human genome, otherwise we would have selected out of this it wouldn 't still be part of our daily day to day lives um, and I think Ellen uh, also said something important. you know short in my book, you know I, I spent a lot of time in Peru, uh, all over California I, I did a lot of different kinds of psychedelics. Um, and I spent a lot of time trying to tap into what I call this well of grief, where I hold this pain that I'm so afraid of excavating, but there are a lot of really simple methods that can be done to limit our anxiety and to limit the chances of a panic erupting. Um, one of them that has worked for me is limiting caffeine, right? I used to drink probably, I don't know, four cups of coffee a day, maybe more. Uh, now it's half a cup and I do decaf or half calf. um, Limiting alcohol is really helpful. Um, People ask me, hey man, what are your favorite drugs? You know, thinking that my... year and a half or two years spent trying different psychedelics was like Hunter S. Thompson slaloming across Las Vegas in his convertible red Chevy Caprice. But no, like my mode of transportation was a couch, Mm -hmm. often with psychiatrists or psychologists or facilitators or shamans by my side.
3: Irene emails, as a professor of theater, I've worked with a lot of students who experience panic attacks. Actor training, especially voice and movement practices, train your courage by rehabilitating your flight or fight response to create a new reflex of relaxing in the face of fear. We practice high-stress situations in a safe environment. And Amanda emailed, I have had panic attacks that included hyperventilation and heart rate spikes, but my worst caused my husband to call 911 because I lost control of my ability to move and could not stop my uncontrollable screaming. I have since worked with my therapist to look for tell signs, and she's recommended ice cubes. In order to distract myself, I go to the freezer, grab a handful of ice cubes and don't let go until my focus is fully on that feeling. Dr. Vora, what I'm hearing from Matt and from our listeners is is part of the experience of a panic attack is this feeling of detachment from your body, um, losing, losing that connection. Briefly before we go to break, if someone's looking for some techniques to help them reconnect to their body, what advice do you have?
4: Yeah, and so, so much of panic, it's we think about the default mode network in the brain, but it's really focused on the future or sometimes the past, though with anxiety, typically the future. And part of what can be a salve to that is to ground back into the present moment, which is easier said than done when you're in a panic attack. And so um, the ice cube method is a wonderful strategy. I'll sometimes have patients splash cold water on their face, or if they're indoors, to go outside to move their body in the fresh air. There are practices like the... Um, starting to name five things you can see, four things that you can hear, three things you can smell, two things you can taste, one thing you can feel, all of this, and you can start to just ground yourself in the present moment. Still to come, we'll learn more about how Matt, after hundreds of panic attacks over the
3: course of decades, finally conquered his formerly debilitating disorder. You have ideas to share too.
1: I haven't had a panic attack in about four years, and it's really what helped with supplements and talk therapy.
3: More of your story shortly.
0: That's T E L A D O C health slash what's your why.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp online therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to MintMobile.com switch.
3: Let's get back to our discussion by hearing from some of you about how you've conquered your panic attacks.
2: What I've learned helps me the most is frequency hertz meditation. It's
3: playing different hertz frequencies. There's a lot of playlists on Spotify and on YouTube. Supplements
1: and talk therapy. Uh, Supplements I took were 5-HTP and also CDB tinctures. Breathing and walking, which are very simple things to do, I was able to reduce and manage.
3: Thanks for those messages. Matt, those ideas likely sound familiar. You tried almost everything to treat your panic disorder, um, including medication. What pharmaceutical solutions did you try and what effect did they have?
1: Uh, well, so I was on Paxil, Gen for 18 years. Paxil is an SSRI, and antidepressant, kind of old school. Um, but it, it seemed to work to reduce my generalized anxiety, but it didn't do anything for the panic. And so my psychiatrist prescribed um, Xanax, which only really worked if I took enough of it, but then I felt really sluggish and I couldn't foresee a life in which I'm going live on TV 7, 10, 20 times a week and having to take that much Xanax. Um, I also tried propranolol, which is very commonly used among concert um, pianists and and musicians because your fingers stop trembling. It's a beta blocker. Um, But that made me feel sluggish too. And I, I just didn't want to live a life in which I was constantly taking pills in order to do my job. Um, and the beauty of what your listeners just described, and I loved it, is the variety of all the things that worked for them, which shows that it all works. And in my first session with psychedelics was with um, a practitioner in the Bay Area, um, and it was mushrooms, ps- psilocybin. And I asked her, uh, I said, Farah, what, what works? she said a shaman in, in Southern Mexico once told her everything. And, th- and that's what I hear your listeners doing, right? So, you know, taking steps, getting that serotonin going in your body. If you do a little walking or even more exercise with endorphins, endogenous morphine, that's the drug in our body that makes us feel good. Endorphins um, after exercise, that works for some people. Um, the ice, uh, the breathing, basically People have to find whatever works for them and then lean on it. Um, And it might not work forever, but we adapt to these things. Um, But basically, panic can't be fully conquered, right? But we can definitely reduce the incidents and strip away the shame and thousand pounds of stigma that have been attached to panic over the years. Um, And that's really what works so well for me. The drill sergeant in my head that used to tell me, as I'm panicking live on TV, you're a failure. You're terrible. Listen to you. You're a disaster. I've retired that drill, sergeant. I'm still ambitious. I still go for it hard, but I don't have that voice in my head screaming at me and being so cruel. I'm just a little bit kinder to myself uh, in my own head.
3: Yeah, Matt, what helped you quiet that voice? I mean, you tried a lot of things. Was there a moment when you said, oh, this, this is the thing that's going to work for me? Well, one of my favorite things is that, uh, is crying
1: (laughs) and Mm -hmm. psychedelics helped me get to a place that I just dreaded going to in my right mind. And I called it the well of grief. And is it from, you know, my, my dad being killed in a plane crash when I was young? Is it because I was held by the Mm -hmm. Venezuelan secret police for five terrifying days and accused of being CIA? Is it because of being a depository for people's grief? in my day-to-day job for so many years. I I don't know, and I don't know if it matters, but going to these altered states through breath work and psychedelics helped me excavate all of this pain, and I cried and I screamed, and I completely got pillows wet from my tears, and it made me feel a lot better, and this is, I'm gonna toss it over to Ellen Vora, and when I describe this to her, and and she has a famous phrase that we are due for a cultural rebrand for crying. Um, because it's free therapy and it works. You don't have to know why you get this pain out, but the fact that you get it out is so very helpful and so very medicinal, Uh, as is, sorry, one more thing, Jen, as is sharing. When I started telling people my story, they just started sharing back and I realized how pervasive panic really is in our society and how much more accepting of panic and my weakness and my greatest vulnerability
3: people were than I ever thought that they would be. Dr. Vora, I'd love to hear you talk about this need to create more space or just normalize crying. Um, I, I've i often said that in the U.S. I think we're really bad at grief. <laughs> we, we don't have a culture that, that supports
4: grieving. What needs to shift? I I couldn't agree more. I think we are culturally bankrupt around rituals for grief. And a lot of us have quite a lot of unmetabolized grief, which is not just from loss, losing somebody we love, but it can be from divorce, from pregnancy loss, from abortion, from a change in job, becoming an empty nester. There's so many things that we are carrying around grief for. And um, it is the beauty of medicines like the psychedelics and breath work and really just normalizing crying and giving ourselves permission to rather than make it as small as possible and apologize and say, I'm sorry, assuming we're a burden on the people around us anytime we cry, to really just give ourselves permission to cry fully. Let it be big and ugly and Interestingly enough, it's not a burden on the people around us. It actually induces a mirror image oxytocin release for people around us. It actually, um, there's a component of the stress response called adrenocorticotropic hormone that comes out in our tears. So it effectively cuts the stress response off at the roots. So it's a very effective treatment. It's free, it feels good, it bonds us to each other, and it's really underutilized. And it's, it's interesting about the psychedelics. I think of them as in contrast to our conventional medications, which many times when we report that a conventional medication is working, a patient might say, I'm crying less, and we consider this to be a success. With psychedelics, often they actually allow for, rather than suppressing and tamping down emotion, it's very purgative. It am- allows for a big emotional release. And I think that has to do with part of why they're so effective. When I hear
3: you say, we need to cry, we need, it to, let it, we need to let it be big and ugly. Um, the idea of that, I'll confess, makes me anxious. <laughs> the idea of that level of vulnerability um, for people who, who are struggling m- to move into that space, that big, ugly, let it out space. I mean, how do we work ourselves to that place?
4: I think we, I do think crying is a bit of a skill. I've learned that I've gotten better at crying over the years. And I think that some of us feel emboldened to sort of be rebelliously, able to go first and say, I'm going to normalize crying, even though the people around me might squirm. I think the place where we can affect change even more directly is by holding space for others when they cry. And I think this is a sacred duty we have. When somebody around us starts to cry, most of us convey with our body language and our facial expressions, "Uh, this is awkward, wrap it up. And um, we can instead nod and make sounds like "Mm mm-hmm and push the tissue box toward them and do whatever we can to to show them we're here for this and we can handle your crying. You don't need to tamp this down. You can have the full cry that your body needs to have right now. Uh, Matt, as a man,
3: was that hill a bit steeper for you to climb?
1: I think so. I think that in our society we have, we're, we're wired to have men think of themselves as needing to be in control and people who are in control of their emotions and their actions. Don't cry. Certainly don't Don't cry cry. with strangers. I mean, we wouldn't do that. So it, it is definitely a skill that I learned, but I needed help with learning. Um, and you know, I felt like one of my greatest successes was being able to cry, not on psychedelics, and being able to tap into that deep emotional space, um, and allowing myself to lose control for a little bit. Um, that's pretty hard to do. Um, and I don't know if you, you know, just tapping into that, that more vulnerable, softer side. Um, and, and that took a bit of learning how to do, and I'm, I'm very proud for the way that I I learned how to do that. That's actually one of the best skills that I was able to put in my, my quiver over the past couple of years. Um, and uh, it served me pretty well,
3: Matt. Studies have linked the consumption of bad news to increased stress. How do you think about your work as a journalist in the news industry at large, and and how it can feed panic in our society? You
1: know, there are different kinds of panic. There is societal panic, um, which refers to you know, like the eighteen seventy three panic. The the, the the wall street crash um, and there 's personal panic. I think we are in general, a more anxious society now um, i, I don 't know how much news has ratcheted up the panic. I assume that you know once that overall threshold of anxiety increases. Uh, you know, people get closer to panic and what consuming a lot of news is probably not the best thing for you. Um, we don't watch a lot of news in my household. My kids don't watch me on TV. I don't want them exposed to that. They don't have social media. My daughter just got social media. She's 15. She got it this summer because that's how people communicate in her new school. Um, so I, I try to protect myself, inoculate my children from a lot of the news and a lot of social media. Um And I think it's also important not to take everything that we see on TV or in social media personally or seriously. And the great thing about humans is that typically we're pretty good at compartmentalizing things. Um, And I hope that's the case. But um, I also think that we can't just assume that people see something that makes them stressed out and that gives them a panic attack. A lot of us are just wired for this anxiety is in the family. It's in my family. Um, I'm probably wired for panic as well. Um, Maybe my job increases the likelihood of it, but all of us encounter um, day-to-day activities that are likely to make us panic. I mean, almost everybody has some element of public speaking in their work, going on a Zoom, presenting at a meeting, presenting in front of your colleagues. Um, It's just how we deal with it. And there are lots of measures that can be taken to sort of inoculate us before having a panic. Like the things I mentioned that are so easy, like limiting your caffeine intake, limiting your alcohol, increasing your exercise, and just being kind to yourself as you would be to other people.
3: Dr. Vora, in just a sentence or two, what advice do you have for someone listening who wants to start the journey of gaining control over their panic disorder?
4: I want to echo what Matt said. There's, I think about panic as... There's a lot we can do at the physical level, keeping our blood sugar stable, being strategic about caffeine use and alcohol use, setting ourselves up for good quality sleep, addressing any inflammation and healing our gut. And then at the same time, to make sure that we're giving ourselves an opportunity to process unmetabolized trauma and grief so that we're not carrying that in our connective tissue. That's Dr. Alan Vora, a
3: psychiatrist and author of The Anatomy of Anxiety, and Matt Gutman, chief national correspondent for ABC News and author of No Time to Panic, How I Curbed My Anxiety and Conquered a Lifetime of Panic Attacks. Thanks to you both. Remember, if you're suffering from anxiety or panic attacks, there's a number you can call for help. It's the Mental Health Crisis Hotline at 988. Today's show was produced by Avery Jessa Chapnick and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viori. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics. Built to move in. Styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viori.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Rosetta Stone. An expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off.